John 19, 16-42. Hear the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and his tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, knowing Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In February of 2004, a controversial film was released called The Passion 
of the Christ. And it was produced by Mel Gibson, and it polarized audiences. It shocked everybody, but it polarized audiences, and the reactions were, were very distinct, either very negative or very positive. And one of the main criticisms of the film was its very graphic portrayal of the violence committed against Jesus in the last hours of his life. And because of that graphic portrayal of the violence, it earned it an R rating. Now, it may be that that portrayal was accurate. It may be. But that approach to presenting Jesus' death is very, very different from the approach we find in the New Testament, in the Gospels. When we find it describing the flogging and the crucifixion of Jesus, actually there isn't much of a description. There is simply an announcement of what took place. In John, he uses one verb to say that Jesus was flogged, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's all he says. And then in verse 18, another verb says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it, I'm sorry, 18, then they crucified, there they crucified him. And that's it. No description. Now, the original audience didn't need any description of flogging and of crucifixion. So it may be that at this stage we need more of a description of what that's like, which is what the whole purpose of that film was, to describe it very, very graphically. But at the same time, that's not what the authors of the the Gospels were doing because they had another purpose. They were not trying to produce pity or shock on our part by the, the, the terrible violence that Jesus proposed. And in John's case, particularly, he presents Jesus and God as in control of the situation. When we focus only on the violence perpetrated against Jesus, we might fall into pity for Jesus. But when we read this gospel account particularly, we find that Jesus and God are working out their purposes. And we saw that in the arrest of Jesus, we saw that in the trial before Annas, and we saw that in the trial before Pilate, where Jesus was the one most in control. And we see that in this text, because in John, there is a multiplication of citations that say, this happened in order to fulfill what was written in, and then it gives the scripture text, to say that Jesus and God are working out the playbook that they had set before the beginning of time and announced in the Old Testament Scripture. So what we have here in verses 16 to 24 is the crucifixion itself. And then we have in verses 25 to 30, we have the three words from the cross that many of us considered on Good Friday not long ago. Three of the seven words are in John. Then we have the burial in verses 31 to 42. So the crucifixion itself. Now, from the other Gospels, we know of a man named Simon of Cyrene who was pressed into service, gang-pressed into service, in order to carry the cross. But John has another emphasis here. It says in verse 16, So they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross. Now, this is not a contradiction. It's easy to harmonize the accounts. Jesus began to bear the cross, wasn't able to carry it the whole way. They pressed Simon to finish the job of carrying the cross. Easy enough to harmonize those, but let's see what John is doing by emphasizing that Jesus 
carried the cross. He's emphasizing the role that Jesus was playing. Why was he carrying the cross? Because we will see throughout his account that he's emphasizing that Jesus is the one who bears the sins of his people. And if he's the one who bears the sins of his people, it's appropriate that he himself bear the cross, which was the instrument of the punishment of our sins that fell upon him. Now, the Romans had a crucifixion place. Apparently, it was a standard place where they crucified criminals. And it was called the place of the skull. We don't know why it was called the place of the skull. There are conjectures, and I'm sure if you go to the Holy Land, the tourist guides will tell you uh, the different ideas about why. But we really don't know why it was called the place of the skull. But it's certainly appropriate because it was a place of death. And it says, there they crucified him with two others, one on his left and one on his right. Now, it's interesting, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 15.17, I'm sorry, 15.27, Mark used the words to describe these men. He called them bandits, bandits. And it's exactly the same word that John used to describe Barabbas. And so there were bandits on either side of Jesus, and there was Jesus in the middle, and Jesus was there in the middle because a bandit, Barabbas, had been released. And so this, uh, this account is emphasizing that Jesus is literally in the place of sinners by being there on the cross because a bandit was set free and there were bandits on either side of him. Jesus in the middle, in the place of sinners. Now, Pilate had a, as was the custom, he had the placard written, which was the official charge against Jesus. And apparently, in a somewhat vain attempt to have the last word, because as we saw last week, Pilate had been bested by the Jewish leaders, in a vain attempt to have the last word, uh, to have the upper hand against the Jewish leaders, he wrote this inscription, or had it written, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. And he had it written in three languages, which would have been the three languages of the day. Uh, Aramaic, which is a cousin of Hebrew, and the Jews would have spoken Aramaic, and not only Jews, but others in that area would have spoken Aramaic. Latin, which was the language of the, the Romans, and Greek, which was the common trade language of the day. And so, Anybody, basically anybody, who was going by there that day could have read that inscription. And what the leaders said, they said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't put the king of the Jews, but put this man said he was the king of the Jews. And then Pilate very definitively said, what I have written I have written, he was adamant he wasn't going to change this charge. Now, what was going on in Pilate's mind, we don't know. How much he understood, how much he believed about this, we don't know. But we know that he was the instrument of putting a placard above Jesus, declaring him trilingually that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And John is wanting us to see that this proclamation is for the world. It says that many... Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in these three languages. So here John is operating on two levels once again. He's wanting us to hear once again one of his favorite techniques and that is putting truth in the mouths of Jesus' enemies. And so the last thing we hear from Pilate 
is his declaration through this placard that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And this is a declaration for the whole world. Once again, an example of of someone speaking much better than he understood. Now, as was the custom, the soldiers got as a, a perk of their job, they got to divide up the garments. And that's what they did. And they divided it into four parts, and we learned that there were four soldiers here. So each of them got a part of the, the garments. But there was the tunic that was seamless, and that was woven from top to bottom. And so they decided that they would cast lots for this tunic, and they did that. And they, unwittingly and unknowingly, by doing that, fulfilled the scriptures, which say they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is in Psalm 22, verse 8. So that's the crucifixion itself. And then we turn to Jesus. So Jesus has not been the actor in this first part. It's been others. But now the focus comes on Jesus and the words he spoke from the cross. Now, in addition to the four soldiers, it looks like that there were four women identified here. This is a little bit ambiguous because in other accounts, other women are named. And it's possible to read these four women or these, 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 these four references here as two women, as three women, or as four women, depending on if it's giving clarification or if it's naming four different ones. I think the best way to read it is as four different women, and they would correspond nicely to the four soldiers. So the four soldiers dividing up his clothing, the four women there, and we find Jesus' mother, who in the Gospel of John is never named, She's just called Jesus' mother. And then we have uh, his mother's sister, so his aunt. And then we have Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, Jesus focuses in on his mother, and for the first time we find that one of his disciples was there. This mysterious disciple who's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's not named. Later, we're going to talk about who that might be. We've already talked a little bit about that, but there is some identification in the, uh, towards the end. But this unnamed disciple was there. He saw his mother, and he saw this disciple. And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple he said, Behold your mother. Now Jesus, as the firstborn son of likely a widowed mother, because we don't hear about Joseph after, 12, after Jesus was 12 years old, Jesus would have had responsibility for her. But this is curious because he had other brothers and sisters who would have had responsibility upon his death. So it's, it's curious that Jesus is giving responsibility to the disciple and not to his brothers. But we just read back in chapter 7 that his brothers didn't believe in him yet. And that would change later, but his brothers didn't believe in him, and his disciple obviously did. So that could be the explanation for this. But we also find Jesus doing something remarkable here, and it's a lesson for us. He was obeying the sixth commandment from the cross. The sixth commandment says, I'm sorry, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And he was obeying the fifth commandment from the cross. Now, why is that significant? Because that's part of what he did for us. You see, when when we we talk about what Jesus did for us, when we answer that as Christians, the, the first thing probably that we're going to say, which is not wrong, which is actually completely correct, is that Jesus died for us. And that's the point of this, this section. Jesus died for us. But this little 
anecdote here, this little incident, is emphasizing that Jesus did something else for us as well. Not only was He our substitute on the cross, bearing the cross, bearing our sins on the cross, but before that, He obeyed the law for us as the representative man. As the man who did not like Adam and every other man and woman after Adam and Eve, except for Jesus, disobey the law. Jesus obeyed the law. And He did that as our representative man before God. So what did Jesus do? He lived perfectly for us, all the way up to His death, obeying completely the law of God, and He died as if He were a transgressor in our place. That's the first word. Now, the second word is in verse 28. It says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, this saying, I thirst, does not in itself fulfill the scripture. It's actually the response of the the soldiers to Jesus' announcement of thirst that fulfilled the scripture. So Jesus said, I thirst. And then the soldiers gave him this sour wine on a hyssop branch, which is exactly what Psalm 69:21 said. It says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So here once again, God is fulfilling His pre-announced plan, the soldiers unknowingly fulfilling this Scripture. Now, there are a couple interesting and, and meaningful details about this text that we need to bring out. And that's in verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. All was now finished. This is one word. And uh, it is it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. And uh, it's a, he, Jesus knows that everything is finished. And then if you look at it, it says, said to fulfill the Scripture. There is a word, a verb that's, that's usually used to fulfill the Scripture. And that's not that word. The word that's used here to fulfill the Scripture is the same word as we just heard, knowing that all was now finished. Now, if that just was confusing, let me try to put this together. So what this says is, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to finish the Scriptures, or Jesus, knowing that all was now completed, said to complete the Scripture. So he uses the same word twice there, and he's about to use it a third time. About to use that same verb the third time in verse 30 when he gives his third word that's recorded here. But there is an emphasis here using this word in an unusual way, in fact a unique way in the New Testament by using it to fulfill Scripture. Uh, John is emphasizing fulfilled, 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 completed, 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 finished, 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 and that leads us to the third word, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, and this is the exact same word that's in 28, He said, it is finished. It is completed. It is accomplished. And this verb is in what's known as the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is similar to our perfect tense in, in English, except that in the Greek language in which this was written, the perfect tense has this idea that it is an action completed in the past whose effects last into the future. That is to say, it is a completed action that doesn't end. 
it is a completed action that is always complete and its effects go on. So by saying it is finished, Jesus is emphasizing that it is finished and it will always be finished. It is completed and it will always be completed. It is accomplished and it will always be completed. It is done and it will always be done and cannot be undone. And then another curious expression at the end of verse 30. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We know what that means. It means he died. But it is not a usual way of talking about how someone dies. And it's interesting that Jesus, once again, is the actor here. He is the one who is the subject. He is the one who is doing this. It doesn't say, and finally they finished him off. Finally they killed him. It says, he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Jesus had already told us back in John chapter 8. I'm sorry, John chapter 10, 18. He says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I lay it down because I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from the Father. And here we find Jesus doing that with this curious expression about Jesus actively giving up His Spirit, actively giving up His life, laying down His life because He has the authority to do that. Those are the three words from the cross. Fulfilling the commandments on our behalf, and then fulfilling the, the prediction that they would give Him sour wine for His thirst, and then saying, it is complete, and can never be incomplete. It is done, and can never be undone. Now, the burial... Um, is, is curious because once again we see the, the contradiction that we already saw in the, the, the Jewish leaders, at least the Jewish leaders that we're dealing with here. Actually, a couple of Jewish leaders are going to distinguish themselves at the end of this section. So it's not all of them, but the ones who, are, who were involved and the, the, the main ones who were clamoring for Jesus' death. We have seen a combination <clears throat> in them. <clears throat> We've seen a combination in them of scrupulosity about details of the ceremonial law and a, a cruelty and a, a willingness to practice gross injustice. And we see that once again. And by the way, we saw that this is how ritualistic religion works. If your religion is simply a matter of checking boxes, then you can practice unspeakable cruelty and still feel pretty good about yourself because you've, you've clicked off and checked uh, the right ritualistic boxes. You've, you've performed this rite or this sacrament or, or this ritual. And you can say, well, I'm okay no matter how I live my life. And that's, that's what we see in a, a shocking way here. It says, it was the day of preparation. And so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath because there is an Old Testament scripture that says, don't leave the bodies on uh, exposed during the Sabbath because that would desecrate the land. And so they were very, very careful not to want to desecrate the land. And so what did they do? They asked that Pilate would have his soldiers take the iron mallet that they used for this purpose and break the legs of the crucified men. Now, crucifixion could kill in a number of ways. 
um, exposure, uh, dehydration, asphyxiation. Uh, there were a number of different things could take a man's life uh, on a cross. But one of the things that could hurry that up would be to break the legs, and so the man would have no support to try to, to try to be able to breathe, and that would bring on asphyxiation more quickly. And so they wanted to hurry up and get this over with so that they could fulfill their, their ritual and bury them and make sure that they didn't desecrate the Sabbath. So smash men's legs so that they don't desecrate the Sabbath. And so they did that. They broke the legs of the first two. And then they came to Jesus, and they found that he had already died. Verse 33. But one of the soldiers, he pierced his side with a spear. Verse 34. We don't know why he did that, but we can imagine that he did that just to make sure that Jesus was dead. And so he pierced the side with the spear, and out came blood and water, and the significance of the, of the blood and water uh, has been explored in a number of different ways, both medically and, bo- and theologically as well. We sang a hymn today that reflects poetically about, about the blood and water. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flows be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me of its guilt and power. But we know that at least this is what the blood and the water mean. They mean that Jesus was really dead. That was the purpose of the spear thrust, apparently, to make sure that Jesus was really dead. And then this also, this also fulfilled the Scripture. These these soldiers are doing a great job unknowingly of fulfilling multiple Scriptures. Because if you look at verse 36, it says, For these things took place, here we have the reason they took place, whatever they might mean medically, the reason they took place was so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. The others had their bones broken. Jesus did not have his bones broken. And another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Numbers chapter 9, 11, and Zechariah twelve ten. Now, this Numbers 9, 11... Numbers 9.11 required that the bones of the Passover lamb not be broken. And so, by not breaking the bones of Jesus, it's pointing to the fact that he was the Passover lamb. Oh, and I forgot one detail. I meant to tell you this. When they lifted the sour wine to Jesus, John is the only one that names the kind of branch they used. It was the hyssop. It was the hyssop plant. Now, that's significant because if you go to the Old Testament, the hyssop plant was used for purification by sprinkling. And it was used especially on the very first Passover when they took the blood of the Passover lamb and they sprinkled it on the doorframe. They used hyssop to sprinkle the blood. And so the hyssop was used as it was at the Passover. And here, none of his bones was broken as they were not supposed to break the bones of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. So what is John doing here? He's putting forward the fact that who was Jesus? Why was he doing this? Jesus was the Passover lamb, the completion of that, the fulfillment of that, who died so that the people would not die. Who died so that, so that death and destruction might pass over us and not touch us if we are covered by that blood. Now there is an interjection here 
in verse 35, it says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. He who saw it has borne witness. Now, there are a couple ways to read this. It could be that the author is speaking about somebody else who was an eyewitness, and he's reporting that there was an eyewitness there, and I'm telling you about that eyewitness, but actually a better way to read it is that it's the author talking about himself. He's talking about himself and saying that I was an eyewitness. I saw this happen, and I am declaring it to you, and I know that it's true because I saw it with my own eyes. And the reason is this, that you also may believe. We've seen this all through the Gospel of John. Why is the Gospel of John written? So that we may believe in Jesus as the Lamb who was slain for us, as the one who takes away the sins of the world, as the one who gives forgiveness to all who will trust in Him, so that you may also believe. But let's ask ourselves, what does this also mean here? Also in addition to whom? In addition to the eyewitness. Now think about this. We'll see this later in an interaction with with Thomas. But what he's saying here is this. You folks, we today have as much possibility of believing that these things are true as those who were there as eyewitnesses. Why? Because we have their testimony. And we know that their testimony is true because they saw it. And so this is the call. This is the the call of the whole Gospel of John. This is the call of the Gospel. That we would believe in Jesus even as those who saw it believed in Jesus. Not with a, a lesser faith. On the contrary, we'll see that there is a blessing on those who have not seen, but believe the testimony of those who did see. Now, there are two members of the Jewish council that distinguish themselves here. And so we need to be careful, and I perhaps have not been careful, as I've talked about the Jewish leaders. Because the Jewish leaders were not a monolithic group. We find that there were some that dissented from the, the majority opinion. And we meet two of them. We meet one for the first time, and we meet another for the third time. The one we meet for the first time is a man named Joseph of Arimathea saying his hometown. And it says here that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, this is not a complimentary description of Joseph, because he's already told us that there were some secret disciples, and they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so this is not a compliment. But Joseph does something remarkable here. He decides that it's time, finally, to declare his loyalty, to show his true colors, and no longer be a secret disciple of Jesus. And so he goes, using his clout, apparently as a member of the council, and he goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. That was unusual, because normally the body would be given over to the family members. He was not a family member. But Pilate gave him permission. And this was risky. Jesus had just been crucified. And that was the moment at which Joseph came out and identified himself as a follower of Jesus. Meanwhile, Nicodemus, we've met Nicodemus twice. And here we're reminded about the first time we met him. It was back in John chapter 2. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. 
And that was emphasized in John chapter 2. He went to Jesus by night. Judas went out and it was night. And here we're reminded that Nicodemus also had come to Jesus by night. He, while Joseph went to ask for the body, he went and brought back a quantity of burial spices that was fit for a king. 75 pounds, the translation here says, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. What are we to understand about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, who went to Jesus by night. Nicodemus, who raised a procedural objection to the condemnation of Jesus and was quickly shut down in the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is finally showing his colors as well as a follower of Jesus. Now, how does this function in not just the narrative, but how does it function in the lives of the original readers? And how does it function in our lives? And the answer is that it functions as a call for us. And it functioned as a call to the original readers because many of the original readers were Jewish readers. And they were identifying in some way with Jesus. And they were believing in some way with Jesus, as we've seen many people through the Gospel of John that were sort of kind of believers. And they were interested in Jesus and they were attracted to Jesus. And here, at the, towards the end of this, after Jesus is crucified, John is saying, it's time to come out, folks. It's time to come out of the shadows. It's time to come out of secrecy. It's time to declare your loyalties, no matter what that might cost you. And you want a couple of examples of people whom it may have cost much? Well, there's Joseph and there's Nicodemus. They had much to lose, but as Jesus was crucified, they came out. And it's time for you to come out as well. That's the same call to us as well. Are we publicly followers of Jesus? Are we known to be followers of Jesus? Are we outwardly followers of Jesus, explicitly followers of Jesus? Do our friends, do our family members know that we're followers of Jesus, no matter what that might cost us? It's time. It's time to come out. Why? Because it's finished. It's completed. It's done. It is the time for coming out as, the, as true believers in Jesus. Now, we learn from other Gospels that this burial place was, belonged to Joseph. And he had means, and that was convenient because it was nearby the place of the skull. They took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, hurriedly to try to beat sundown on Friday night when the Sabbath started. And it says there was a garden there, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now this would have been, this would have satisfied the Jewish leaders. They were happy about this because there would be no exposed body uh, during the Sabbath day. So they were happy and Jesus was placed in a new tomb with a rich man in his death. The tomb of a rich man. Now, tombs were often shared as they are to this day. We have family plots this day, and a tomb was not a cheap thing to have, and so there often more than one person would be buried in the same tomb, unsealed, uh, bury another person. This would, would have been some sort of a cave with a rock door to go over the front of it, as we'll see. And um, Jesus was the only one in there. Jesus was the, the first one to go into that tomb. Now, the fact that 
His body was the only one that went into that tomb is significant. Because it meant that if any body was going to come out of that tomb, there was only one person that could do so. There would be no doubt about who came out of that tomb if only one person went into that tomb. So that's a part of the significance here. Jesus was buried alone in a new tomb that no one else had ever used. And so if anyone comes out, it's going to be Jesus. And that's exactly what we'll find out happened in our text for next week. You probably know the end of the story, but don't miss it again. Because next week, we learn what happens in that tomb in which only one person was laid. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this account of the the crucifixion of Jesus and all of the little details that John included to emphasize the meaning that Jesus is the Passover Lamb that was slain for us. That Jesus is the One who fulfilled all of the promises of redemption from the Old Testament. That that You, O God, were in control of this. This was no accident. You did it to fulfill Your plan from before the ages that You announced in Scripture. And that You had Jesus buried by Himself in a tomb so that it would be abundantly clear when He comes out that He is the One and the only One who was risen, just as He said. Father, I pray for all of us who are hearing this text today that we would do as we're called to do in this text that we, like that eyewitness, would believe so that the benefits of the death of Jesus, the benefits of the life of Jesus, and as we'll see, the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus would be ours. Oh God, make us believers indeed. And I pray for us, if we have been hiding our faith from those around us, that we would come out now, O God, as public followers of Jesus, that we would not be ashamed that we would declare Him openly, no matter what the cost might be to ourselves. And we pray this in His name. Amen.